down in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America Welcome everyone, this is Karen Schoen and you are listening to the prism of America's education. Why do I constantly talk about education? Because education is the glue that ties us together. Just think, what does every American go through in America? And the answer is some type of schooling. Well, what are they learning in school? Sadly, the reports are coming in that due to Common Core and the pandemic, America's children are two years behind the rest of the world. How do we make that up? Certainly not with the curricula that there is in school today. The curricula in school today is an agenda and it is being pushed on our children. They are learning to do more and expect less. They are learning that the American dream is going to become an apartment and not your little single family home in the suburbs. Actually, this government is trying to destroy our suburbs. Why? Oh, well, in the name of equity. But what is equity really? It's wealth transfer from those who have to those who do not. And right now, their target are the suburbs. So what are our children learning in school? Well, they're certainly not learning anything about the American dream or about America. They are learning that they will be able to be subject to and for anything the government hands out to them, because this government believes that if you give enough handouts, you'll get the votes. And that's really what this is all about. So let's tackle, we have two items. Let's take a look at the suburbs, and then we'll look at the vote. Because what happens in the suburbs? Well, this was an article that was in Breitbart that I thought was absolutely telling from John Nolte, and he nailed it. And he said, why does the left hate the suburbs? For starters, because we tend to vote Republican. Worse still, we are truly happy out here. The suburbs way of life proves people live fuller lives if they are unbothered by central authority and control. We prove that government causes way more problems than it solves. And nothing makes the left angrier than happy, contented people that they cannot control. The Biden administration announced January 19th that it will require all towns across the U.S. to submit equity plans showing how they will make it possible for low-income people to live in the suburbs by providing affordable housing, transportation, and other resources. Towns that don't meet the cookie-cutter requirements for economic diversity will lose federal funding. Is this a new policy? No, it's not. This is a regurgitation of Obama's Uh, what was it? Affirmatively furthering fair housing. 
that Trump said, no, people should be allowed to choose the type of place they want to live in. And if it's single family house, that's where they should go. But not with Biden. He's bringing back Obama's policy. Now, what happens in these towns? Well, corruption breeds more corruption. And this is what we have going on right now. So I always ask this question, when do Americans get to fight for their country? Or are we always going to be subjects of the people who represent us? Will you go to a planning and zoning meeting and find out what's going on in your community? Do you know the history of what goes on in communities? We say all elections, all politics start local. But is that really true? If you find corruption in your city, in your county, what can you do about it? Well, unbeknownst to most of us, we had a battle in America to fight all of those corrupt elections in a town in Tennessee. And since this is a lesson in history, which I'd like to talk about today, because there are so many historical things that are happening that are being taken away and we don't even know what they are anymore. I asked my favorite historian to join us today. Bill Federer, how are you? And thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Bill, I know a long time ago when you were on the show, you described the Battle of Athens, and most people had no idea what that was or why it was important. So I thought today, since there is so much going on with corrupt elections, that that might be one of the topics that you could explain to everyone. Americans did fight for free elections. Americans did fight against the corrupt government, only nobody knows about it anymore. So, Bill, what was the Battle of Athens? Um, well, it was 1946, and it is where you had Athens, Tennessee, and there were World War II veterans that were returning, and the uh, local officials had uh, predatory policies, police brutality, and all kinds of political corruption and voter intimidation. And so there was a uh, a vote grab in the elections, and people uh, decided to storm the um, the city hall there where the uh, election fraud was going on, and it uh, gained national attention. Wow. National attention to election fraud, and these people weren't called crazy conspiracy theorists, were they, Bill? Uh, no, and it is one of the things that you see a recurring theme is top-down versus bottom-up, and most of the world is top-down, where you have kings and pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers, sultans and czars, and the uh, guy at the top forces his will on everyone else. Uh, even King James in England said, kings are God's lieutenants upon earth, sit upon God's throne. The king is the overlord of the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. And so whether it's a, a Lenin, a Stalin, a Chairman Mao, um, it's the top-down form of government of people who think they're smarter than everybody else. Um, and uh, the deep state bureaucracy and our country was founded by people who broke away from that. Uh, the King of England at the time of the revolution was the most powerful king on the planet. 
he had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and America. And America's founders decided they didn't like this top-down globalist, one-world government king telling us what to do. And so they flipped it and made the people the king. So the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. So Ooh. you're a citizen of America. You are a co-king of America. And so America is an experiment where the people are in charge and they have their will pushed from the bottom up versus some body at the top saying we want to force everybody below to follow these federal equity uh, inclusion type plans that you were describing at the beginning of this show. Um, now, one of the things when you look at uh, demographics, I ran for Congress three times. I was amazed at how they would spend 10 years planning to redraw congressional district maps. And they would go around one block and skip another block and go down the other block. Crazy maps that they would draw all to cut out some voters and bring in other voters because they wanted to preserve these congressional districts. Well, they found there's an easier way. You just simply change the demographics rather than drawing a line around them. You change the de demographics. How? By having crime go up. When crime goes up, a certain demographic leaves. Now, who leaves? Well, maybe uh, people with families and small children. Okay, pro-family people leave. Well, they, they tend to be more conservative and pro-family. Well, that, that would tend to be Republican. And then when you let crime go up, and windows get smashed and defund the police, well, guess what? A lot of store owners decide it's no longer profitable to do business where they're being extorted and vandalized. And so they move out. Okay, pro-business people. Well, they usually are conservative and Republican. Okay, so if you have crime go up, you get rid of the pro-family, pro-business people. And then you throw in there shutting down churches like they did with the COVID response, right? You, and then uh, who's left in the city? a higher percentage of people that are on government entitlements, welfare, and so forth. Well, who, what, what party do they usually vote for? Democrat. And so rather than redrawing all these maps and lines, you just have crime go up and the Republicans leave and the Democrats get a majority in the city politics. And whoever controls the city usually controls the state. And whoever controls the state gets all the electoral votes for the state, and the president is elected by electoral votes. So it only took six cities to win the last election, right? Detroit, right. Philadelphia, Atlanta, Phoenix, um, Milwaukee. You have crime go up, Republicans leave, right? Democrats get a monopoly of city politics. And if they can do voter fraud in the city, they, they, they just seem to leave a lot of dead people and the people that moved out on the election rolls so they can do fraud and stuff the election box and nobody notices because it's their anonymous ballots. And as long as it's below the number of registered voters, even though they may have died or moved away, they still can, can stuff it. And so they can do fraud in the big cities and end up out. They always wait until all the rural areas uh, report. And then the city says, Oh, it's, it's, it's harder to count the votes here. So we're going to take longer. And then they just tip it. And then uh, they win the city, they win the state, they get the electoral votes, they win the presidency. And, and it's amazing that people don't understand how the political mind works. 
and the ends justifies the means. And the people that do this are convinced that their agenda is so good that it's okay to do this type of behavior so they can get in power, so they can push their agenda. And it may seem simplistic, but I ask people, if you can mentally justify killing an unborn baby that never did anything wrong, you can mentally justify voter fraud. You can mentally justify anything. You know, you're, you are so right. And this reminds me of George Santos, who got into Congress by lying. And I'm thinking, he didn't do anything different than the president did. So what's the difference? And is this where we're headed? That the only way that we can get any place is to lie? And it looks like it is. So what is the political mindset, Bill? Uh, you're absolutely right. Politics, civics, government classes are no longer taught in school. And I believe the people are kept ignorant on purpose. What do you think? Right. Well, it's called consequentialism, where if you believe the consequence of your actions will be good, then you can justify doing evil to get there. Uh, 500 years ago, Machiavelli wow. uh, lived in Italy, and Italy was a bunch of city-states. Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and these city-states always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of these city-states, then it would stop all the infighting. So his end was good, and so he came up with the idea that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city and the city does not want to be conquered, they would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, smash windows, get people into fear and panic, then the people will cry out for help. The prince will come in and get rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the mess. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house, set it on fire, then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher, and they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. And that has become a chief part of politics, where they want to have, they'll actually say, okay, this is our agenda, we want to do this. Okay, we need to, we need to have a crisis that will cause people to panic so they'll give up their freedom so that we can achieve this agenda. And they will plot out crises months and even years in advance. And it's interesting where... They'll be, oh, is it the healthcare crisis, we have to hurry up and push through this, you know, 3,000 page bill that nobody had time to read, but ever somebody had time to write. And then you have Nancy Pelosi saying, we have to hurry up and pass this thing so we can find out what's in it. It's like, really? <laughs> you, you, you... It's like buying a car without test driving it or yeah. buying a house without inspecting it. How do you know what you're getting? You don't. It's yeah, impossible. And in normal times, people wouldn't buy it. But if there's a if they're whipped up into a panic, I was watching Ben Dominich on Fox Primetime. And he says, um, uh, the authoritarian left needs to create crises because normal times don't produce the, the fear uh, that tactics. Um, and so if if uh, if there's not crisis, they have to fabricate them. So so they need to push. So in, it's called fear mongering in politics, where you want to stir up people into fear. Oh, the Republicans are going to take away your Social Security. Hurry up, hurry up. We need you to hurry up and vote. It's like, oh, well, quick, quick, quick. 
um, they don't stop and realize, no, the Republicans don't want to take your, away your Social Security. It's, um, and then well, they also have something called race baiting, where they intentionally want to tap into and stir up racial tensions so that you can mobilize voting. And that's what we see happening today. I asked a friend of mine who happens to be black if he thought that there was so much race hatred um, in the community. And he said, Karen, you don't understand. Race has nothing to do, race hatred has nothing to do with race. It has to do with money. And every time one of these groups, one of these NGOs goes out and says, I was this and I was attacked and I'm a victim and blah, blah, blah. What they're really saying is, give me your money. And money doesn't stop anything. It only perpetuates it. So unfortunately, if we the people would say, okay, if you call me a racist, show me where, because they never can, uh, then that would be a whole different thing than just accepting the fact that, oh, I'm not going to say that he's a bad person because he's black and they may call me a racist. So they have done an incredible job with the race baiting, don't you think? Yeah, and it's actually not a color problem. It's a political party problem. In other words, uh, Democrats had slaves, uh, Andrew Jackson, the founding of the founder of the Democrat Party, owned slaves. Lincoln freed slaves. Lincoln was the first Republican president. Um, you had the Democrats push through the fugitive slave law, where if a slave from the Democrat South escaped and went north where there wasn't slavery, this was a federal law to make you snitch on your neighbor who's uh, you know, helping slaves to escape. And if you don't, you've committed a federal crime. And so the Joshua Glover was a black man that escaped to the north. He was in Wisconsin and somebody snitched on him and he was put in the Milwaukee jail. Five thousand white Republican, well, Wisconsin's stormed the jail in 1854 and free Joshua Glover. Two days later, these white Wisconsin's form the Republican Party. And the original plank in the Republican Party was to eliminate the twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy. What's polygamy? Well, you had the Utah Mormons and multiple wives, and they said, no, marriage is one man and one woman. It's not uh, what they're, any, it's not any type of people loving each other and, and all that. No, it's one man and one woman. And the relic of slavery. And so Republican Party was always against slavery and the Democrat Party was in favor of slavery. And now, so why don't people know that, Bill? <laughs> why don't they understand that? <laughs> that is amazing to me that here they are. Uh, the blacks are so hell bent in pushing the Democrats through. They have no idea what the history of the Democrat Party was, no matter how many times we tell them their cognitive dissonance, meaning that even though something is true and they will espouse something totally against their own belief, just to complete the narrative and be with the crowd, uh, they have no idea the history of the Democrat Party and how entrenched in slavery it was. Yeah, so the uh, after the Civil War, 
the Union Anti-Slavery North left federal troops in the South to protect Blacks. And it's called the period of Reconstruction. And you had uh, all the different states elected Black congressmen and Black senators, and they were all Republican. And then the, um, uh, the Democrats, even though they were forced to have equality, they started vigilante groups, most notably the KKK. And so they, Ulysses S. Grant started, who was a Republican, he started the Department of Justice to go after the Democrat KKK. And so in 1871, there was even an a, a anti-KKK act that was pushed through by the Republicans against the Democrats themselves. And even uh, Robert Byrd was a Democrat senator, the longest-serving ever Democrat senator. Hillary Clinton gave a eulogy when Senator Robert Byrd died and said, he was my mentor. And President Obama said great things about Senator Robert Byrd when he died. Robert Byrd said, you could not advance in the Democrat Party unless you were a member of the KKK. This Democrat senator admitted why, they asked him, why, why were you a member of the KKK? He says, you could not advance in the Democrat Party unless you were a member of the KKK. And here, and then you had um, the Republicans, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was the first president to invite a black man into the White House for dinner. And it was Booker T. Washington. And then you had Teddy Roosevelt pushing through anti-lynching laws. Lynching, terrible, where they would grab someone and kill them. And so Tuskegee Institute, started by Booker T. Washington, did a very detailed research on the number of lynchings in America. And there were somewhere over 4,000 documented lynchings. Unfortunately, there were more than that. But as far as the documented ones, over 4,000. And 1,000 of those, probably about 1,200 of those, were white Republicans who were lynched because they were down in the South registering the freed slaves to vote. So the lynchings, about one every four, one, one out of every five lynchings was not just a, a black person. It was a white Republican. They called them radical Republicans because they were down there in the South registering the freed slaves to vote. And then you had Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, gets elected president. And he shows a KKK film in the White House. And he um, was president when they had the Plessy versus Ferguson, a black man was on a train and they said, you have to be on the back train cars, which were all lousy. And this case went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court pushed through this horrible case, Plessy versus Ferguson. And um, Woodrow Wilson said, okay, since that's the Supreme Court's decision, he decided to segregate all federal offices, segregate the postal department, segregate the military. Uh, and he was a Democrat. And then you had a Republican Eisenhower. And when he was general, he integrated the military. And then it was Eisenhower sending federal troops to the South to escort, you know, the students to class. And you had Democrat Governor George Wallace standing in front of the school, refusing to segregate, to, to integrate the schools with blacks and whites together. 
And Martin Luther King Jr., in his famous speech, said, you know, I have a dream that someday in the South, the sons of slave owners and the sons of slaves will walk together, you know, hand in hand. And he goes, in the South, where it, the governor of Alabama, with his lips dripping with hatred, uh, you know, someday right there in Alabama, there's going to be this. Well, who's the Alabama governor with his lips drip, dripping with this racism? It's Democrat Governor George Wallace. Right, so here you have Martin Luther King Jr. condemning a Democrat governor. And then you had Al Gore Sr. He was one of the Democrat senators that filibustered a civil rights bill. So the Republicans were wanting to push through another civil rights bill to give blacks rights. And the Democrats filibustered it for like over 60 days. The entire federal government came to a standstill. And then... Uh, you had uh, uh, Richard Nixon to made the deciding vote to prevent the Democrats wanted to add a, a feature to the civil rights bill that if a black person was caught in a crime, that it'd be an all white jury. And Richard Nixon vetoed that and said, no, we're not going to have that. And then finally, you had Lynn and he was vice president to Eisenhower. Uh, and so that meant he was the president of the Senate. And then you had Lyndon Johnson and television. And so you had TV is, has been invented now. And you have pictures of the Democrat commissioner, Bull Connor, in Birmingham, Alabama, sicking dogs and fire hoses on the, the black demonstrators during the Children's Crusade and so forth. And, um, and so uh, even Condoleezza Rice, when she was on The View, she said, uh, I'm against gun registration. She said, living in the Deep South, growing up in Birmingham, the, the Democrat commissioner, Bull Connor, and his white knights, right? They would ride through the black neighborhood and terrorize. And she said, my dad and some of the other men at nighttime would go to the head of our cul-de-sac, and they would fire some guns in the air, and it would scare these white knight riders away. And she said, I'm sure if Bull Connor had gun registration, they would have collected all those guns and they would have terrorized us. And I'm not in favor of gun registration. And, and so you had the, the, the tensions in the South and it was not a black white issue. It was a Republican Democrat issue. Lyndon Johnson decided to switch from intimidation to entitlement. So it's called Smart move. So Smart grass. move. And Bill, hold that thought. And people do not go away. This is so important that you learn the history of what led us to today so that when the 1619 Project comes to your school, which it will, you have the ammunition to be able to fight it. Uh, Bill is on the American Minute. I really suggest that everybody go there, sign up and get his newsletter. He sends out an incredible newsletter every day. And I have learned so much just from reading your newsletters. Bill, you'll stay with us for another segment. Please sure. don't go away, folks. This is Karen Schoen. You have been listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Don't go away. We will be right back. 
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. out loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, everyone. This is Karen Chong. You're listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Folks, we are so lucky. I have asked Bill if he would come back and continue this history lesson, because if we don't know our history, we are doomed to repeat it. So, Bill, we had a holiday past week that people are trying to, I believe, ignore or minimize. And that was Valentine's Day. I know that they no longer say St. Valentine's Day because there's a big history that is involved in St. Valentine's Day. And if you would be so kind as to share that with us, that would be great because I am tired of hearing that this is just a hallmark holiday and we shouldn't pay attention. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Karen. Um, So the origins of St. Valentine's Day goes back to the 3rd century A.D., and Rome is being invaded by Goths, G-O-T-H-S. Who were they? Well, when the Chinese began to build their Great Wall of China, it took them centuries to build. But when they completed enough of it, the Huns, like Attila the Hun, could no longer attack into China And so they turned westward and it started this domino effect of displaced tribes across Central Asia. The Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Lombards, the Jutes, the Saxons, the Berbers. And as they came across the Roman border, 
first they came slowly and would assimilate and would learn Latin and would get involved. But as the borders were weaker, then they came across in larger numbers until finally it was battle. So when, when your borders are first breached, it's more peaceful. They just come across. But if you continue to show weakness, it, it's going to break out into actual violent battles. And that's what was happening with Rome. So they needed soldiers. At the same time, there was a plague of Cyprian, probably smallpox, and it killed at its height 5,000 people a day. So this was a pandemic. And many of the soldiers died. And so Rome had uh, this problem. You had an increased invasion, but fewer soldiers. And so Claudius II was the emperor. And he thought that men who were not married made better soldiers. And so he banned traditional marriage in the military. And so uh, sort of like you get the military involved in uh, uh, deciding uh, what is the marriage and uh, pushing the sexual views and so forth. Uh, that's sort of what we're facing today. So people that believed in traditional marriage in the military were, were persecuted. Uh, and at the same time, you have a third thing. Rome had an emperor assassinated. His name was Galanius. And the supporters of Galanius, Galanius were upset at Claudius II. And so Claudius thought that he could appease Galanius's supporters by making Galanius a god. I know that sort of seems a little strange. Oh, yeah. Um, How does that work? But, uh, and so the Roman, he put pressured the Roman Senate to deify this previous assassinated emperor, Galanius to think that you could actually vote to make someone a god. But that's what the Romans did. I, of course, God with a little G. But when they made him a god, that means he has to be worshipped. And so to worship the Roman gods, uh, they would have a government location and a big uh, bucket, so to speak, of incense and then a fire. And you would have to go by, reach in the bucket, grab some incense with your fingers, and then put it on the fire, and it would make a little puff of smoke. And it was no big deal, except it was worship. And Christians would not worship Roman gods and previous Roman emperors, and so Christians would not do that. And it was sort of like kneeling at a, in protests, right? So now we have the worshiping of a new religion. Uh, and everybody knows kneeling is an act of worship from the beginning of time. And so you would have this kneeling in protest to a flag. You're, you're kneeling in religious worship to a new state belief system. And Christians uh, like Sam Coonrod, the Giants pitcher, was the only one not to kneel uh, in protest when they had their you know, anthem protest. And afterwards they asked him why. And he goes, well, I'm a Christian. I just believe you're not supposed to kneel before anybody but God. And then uh, Jonathan Isaac was an Orlando Mag is an Orlando Magic basketball player. And he refused to kneel in protest. And they asked him why. He goes, well, I'm a Christian. I just believe we all partake in God's glory and the gospel is for all of us and so forth. And so, so today it takes backbone not to yield to the pressure to worship the new state beliefs. But back then, Christians refused to pinch incense to the Roman gods, including this Roman god, 
uh, Emperor Galenius, who had been assassinated. And um, now these persecutions began to target Christians more and more for their beliefs. And they would send uh, their version of the FBI to arrest pastors because they were believing something other than what the state official beliefs were. Um, they would tear down churches. They'd confiscate scriptures. They'd boil them alive, cut out their tongues. And the, uh, the printing press was not invented yet. That was not until 1454 with Gutenberg. And so this is in the, the 280s AD. So no printing press. And you had letters. They were called scriptures. They were the Old Testament scriptures, but then the New Testament letters that were copies from, you know, the Gospels and so forth. And the government would come and confiscate them. It was sort of like you could not um, spread your views. You were censored. You couldn't post stuff, so to speak. You couldn't uh, have your your own YouTube channel. You you were you were silenced and, and canceled and blocked. Um, and so they would confiscate your um, copies of the Bible and copies of scriptures. So it was during this time that a whole lot of church records were destroyed. And so we don't have a lot of records on Saint Valentine because of. The church records, the the deleting, the, the canceling out of his history. What little we do know is from Eusebius of Caesarea, and he compiled these around 362 AD, which would have been a little less than a century after he lived. And um, and then Saint Jerome, and he's the one who translated the Bible into Latin. Um, and you had. Uh, around 460 AD. And St. Valentine is mentioned also in the uh, Legenda Sanctorum, a Latin work in 1260 AD, and then in the Nuremberg Chronicle in 1493. So those are four different places that he's mentioned. What we can piece together is he was either a priest or a bishop, either in Rome or in Terni, Italy. And when the Emperor Claudius decided to outlaw traditional marriage of the soldiers that uh, Valentine disobeyed the emperor and married soldiers in secret to their young brides. And so he was involved in civil disobedience. And then when the emperor demanded that Christians worship the previous emperor, Galenius, who was assassinated, St. Valentine refused. And so he was arrested and he was dragged before uh, it's like a January 6th hearing. Right. And then they would uh, throw you in a cell, sort of like they did with these January 6th prisoners. And they just let him sort of waste away in there. And then finally, uh, he's awaiting his execution. And the jailer named Asterius asked Valentine to pray for his blind daughter. And he did, and she was miraculously healed and regained her sight. And so the jailer converted and was baptized with many others. And then right before his execution, uh, St. Valentine wrote a note to the daughter and signed it from your Valentine. Oh. He was he was beaten to death with clubs. And then when that didn't kill him, they beheaded him on February 14th outside the Fl Flaminian Gate in Rome in the year 269 A.D. And uh, so February 14th is the date that St. Valentine died. 
couple centuries later, Pope Galatius designated February 14th officially as St. Valentine's Day. So that's his history. Now, since it is in February, that's the time of the year when the birds begin to mate. And so in the high Middle Ages, Geoffrey Chaucer, considered the father of English literature, wrote a poem called The Parliament of Fowls. Well, the parliament is the assembly or the gathering, and fowls is another name for birds, written in 1393. And so this gathering of birds, and it uh, describes how when these birds get together, they would choose their mates in mid-February. And so he writes this. For this was St. Valentine's Day, when every bird of every kind that men can imagine comes to this place to choose his mate. And he makes another mention in the Canterbury Tales, the book of the duchesses, the book of St. Valentine's Day of the Parliament of the Birds. Now, why does he mention birds? Well, birds mate for life. About 90% of bird species are monogamous. You have the male bird and the female bird, and they're a team. They bear the baby, and the one sits on the egg while the other goes out and gets the food, and the egg hatches, and they, they take turns, different ones. And so it's a team effort uh, it, versus other type of creatures. And so uh, the swans, Canadian geese, ravens, cranes, they mate for life. Blue jays, barn owls, red-tailed hawks, woodpeckers, ospreys, raptors, penguins, the bald eagles. The male and the female make for life. It's an elaborate courtship, depending on their species, and they remain together until one of the partners dies. And so, uh, and the the birds, these little baby birds, they need more extensive care uh, and more instructions from the parents. And so, they uh, then they usually migrate. So they're migratory birds, and because. It happened around Valentine's Day where the birds get together, the birds mate for life, that St. Valentine's Day got associated with mating for life, uh, courtly love, marital fidelity, um, pledging your life to someone for, for your whole entire life, right? And so St. Valentine's Day is got associated with marital fidelity. And one of the other interesting things is you sign a Valentine card with X's and O's. Where does that come from? Well, when the Roman uh, emperor died in, um, oh, in the early 300s, you had a war, and Constantine is a general battling another general named Maxentius outside of Rome, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. And supposedly, before the battle, Constantine saw the sign of Christ in the sky and put it on all of his shields and symbols, and he won. Well, what was the sign of Christ? It was the first two letters of the Greek name for Christ. So we abbreviate states oftentimes with the first two letters. Um, you have the Greeks would would abbreviate names. And so the, the name of Christ in Greek, the first letter is an X, and the second letter is a P. The X makes the K sound, and the P makes the er sound. And so they call it the Cairo, Cairo. And it's so you've seen, you know, third, fourth century Christian Roman art, and it'll have this X and a P sort of together. That's called the Cairo, and that's the first two initials for the name Christ. 
And over the centuries, it got shortened just to the chi, and it was called the Christ's Cross. And that's where you get Xmas, X hyphen M-A-S, like for Christmas. And, oh, that's terrible. They're Xing out the name Christ. No, no, that's a Greek letter that stood for Christ. And so it later became part of a written oath. So you would uh, swear upon a Bible, but if you're going to swear in on a document, you would sign at the Christ's cross where you're pledging before Christ that you're going to keep your pledge, your word of this document. And so that's come down to us as sign at the X. How or, interesting. Or cross my heart, swear to tell the truth. What's the crossing of the heart? That's the Christ cross. And so then they would kiss the document to show sincerity. And so you would you would sign it at the Christ cross, and then you would kiss it to show sincerity. That's come down to us as the X's and the O's on the bottom of the Valentine, where you're pledging your love and your your commitment for life to this person, and then you're giving it the kiss to show sincerity. How fascinating. I always wondered where that came from. As a matter of fact, when I sent out a card um, for Valentine's Day and I put X's and O's and I said, I wonder where this came from. Wow. This is really fascinating. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate it. And the information that you bring is just incredible and so incredible that I'm going to say, Bill, will you come back again and give us another lesson? Because we, the people, are in need of learning our history and learning the truth because we can't share it if we don't know what it is. So yeah. I would love to have you back again. Sure, sure. And I'll, I put these stories in a book. It's called American Minute. And there's one story for every day of the year. And I also have a website, AmericanMinute.com, where you can sign up for a free daily email of this type of history. And I do have some interesting things that happen on Valentine's Day throughout the years, if uh, I have a few minutes to share. We do. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Well, uh, Frederick Douglass was the Republican advisor to President Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves. Frederick Douglass was born as a slave, and he was separated from his mother as a child. And he said he never remembered seeing his mother in daylight, right? Because it was always, they work all day and then they get together in the cabin at night. And, and, and the, all he remembers that his mother called him her little Valentine. And so Ooh. since he doesn't, they didn't often keep track of the dates of the slave's birth. So he doesn't know his actual birth date, but he figures from that, that he was born on February 14th. And then Another sad story is Teddy Roosevelt, and he, before he was president, he was um, getting involved in New York politics, and he got married, and his wife, and he had a baby uh, girl, but shortly after the birth, his wife died, and on that very same day, his mother died, and it happened to be Valentine's Day in 1884. And so he was really depressed. He gives his infant daughter to a, an aunt to raise, and he goes out to the Dakotas, and he becomes a cowboy. And uh, for several years, he's just out in the Dakotas. And um, I actually spoke in Roosevelt, Utah, one time. 
and the town doesn't look too much different than when he went through there a long time ago. And supposedly he hunted there one time, and so they named it after him. Um, so that's Teddy Roosevelt. And then another sort of sad thing is 1929 is the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. And Al Capone's gang in Chicago murdered seven members of Bug Moran's Irish gang. So you had the Italian gang and the Irish gang. And um, Al Capone's hitman was Frank Nitti. He's the guy that would go out and do the, the killing. And to sort of connect to the present, uh, Frank Nitti would go around killing, but he had with him a young guy named Saul Linsky. And Saul Linsky would witness how all Frank Nitti had to do was kill a few people, smash a few windows, and the neighborhood would panic in fear and submit to the mob and agree to, to pay protection money. And Saul Linsky said this is such an effective tool that he applied it to politics, and he called it community organizing. And who was one of his followers was Hillary Clinton. She wrote her senior thesis at Wellesley College on Saul Linsky. One time I spoke at West Main um, High School in, uh, in the Chicago area, and the professor was like Paul Campbell, if I'm not mistaken, he's since passed away. Um, but I spoke at his history classes, six of them all day long. And he had the old wood classrooms with the wooden, you know, walls and the chalkboard and the, the all the patriotic stuff all around and, he, and all wooden desks and he, radiators by the windows. It was an old high school. And he went over to this wooden desk by the window and he said, do you know who sat in this chair? I go, no. He goes, Hillary Rodham. And he said, she was my student and she was conservative back then. She was a Goldwater girl. And then she went off to some uh, liberal college. It was well Wellesley College. And she got mixed up with a pet, uh, pinko Methodist preacher is what he called it. And she became a leftist. And um, anyway, Hillary Clinton did her senior thesis at Wellesley College on Saul Linsky. And then she interned and um, uh, Teddy Kennedy, and uh, who did the, the, Chappaquiddick murder of that girl and, and then did all the cover up and Hillary was part of all the legal team there as a little intern and she learned all that how to do that politicking stuff. Um, so so Hillary Clinton was a follower of Solinsky, who Solinsky wrote around with Frank Nitti of Al Capone's hitman, and President Obama was one of the Alinsky organizers there in Chicago. So uh it's interesting. Anyway, back to of Valentine's Day, we have persecution, persecution of Christians back then. And guess what? The most persecuted religion in the world today is Christians. And um, the uh, Center for Studies on New Religions reported that uh, 90,000 Christians were killed in 2016, 30% by Sharia Islamists. Uh, another one, Save the Persecuted Christians.org. Um, and then Jesus said, uh, Acts 1.8, you shall receive power for the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Well, that word witnesses in Greek is martyr. <laughs> and so wow. anyway, and then Jesus said, uh, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. And then finally, um, by this shall all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. And then John 15 Greater love hath no man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. And so uh, St. Valentine, 
uh, was a witness for Jesus, and he shared the love of God. And um, we have this history where we should share the love of God. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything that you have done and all the research that you have put through. This is incredible. Thank you for coming back. And please tell everyone where they can find you and your terrific books. Sure, sure. Thank you. My website is AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And the one on St. Valentine is in a book called American Minute. And it's one story for every day of the year. And it is a, a great one for teaching and sort of semi-devotional because each one, each story points out faith uh, in, the, in our history. Isn't Bill wonderful? I learned so much from him all the time. Every time I have him on, I learn something new. And he has incredible books, historical books that he has researched and written uh, on his website, American Minute. Please take a look at Bill's books, buy them, and share them with your family and friends. This way you will be able to understand what's happening and you will be able to combat it because you will know the truth. And that is the whole idea. Remember, Ben Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. We do not need any masters. Now, I also thought of something else that I wanted to share with you. So go along with me on this one. I believe that our globalists are practicing a syndrome called Munchausen by proxy. Now, why on earth would I say that? Well, let's look at the syndrome for a minute. The syndrome is a mental condition in which a person repeatedly seeks medical attention for falsified, exaggerated, or self-inflicted physical symptoms. Another definition is a mental condition in which a person repeatedly seeks mental attention for another person for symptoms that are falsified or exaggerated or deliberately induced. Vaccine, border, energy, education, all of these crises that we are facing today have been falsified and exaggerated and have been deliberately induced. So I believe that the globalists are following Munchausen by proxy. Every crisis inflicted upon the American people was created by the people in charge so they can, quote, fix or not fix the problem. But regardless, the masses believe these globalists and make them into heroes. And this is a huge problem because the people are beginning to love their abusers, which is the whole idea. The Republican Party did not put Donald J. Trump in the White House. The American people did. We, the people, wanted someone who was not on the lobbyist payroll. We wanted someone who would bring us the best quality of life and correct the course of the American, of America back to common sense and morality. Under Donald Trump, strangling regulations which were inflicted by the people in charge. Ah, Munchausen. 
were lifted, we became energy independent. 90% of all of the products needing fossil fuel became affordable. The American people thrived. The American dream was alive. And if the globalists did not lie and invent conspiracies, crisis, waste our time on lies and spend our money in grants and projects designed to destroy us, think about how prosperous you would be right now. Do you realize that those illegals coming into this country in their entitlements, which we are giving them, they are making 50% more money than the American people. Under Trump, the border was closing. And if not for the globalist Paul the Liar Ryan stonewalling, Congress would have, the border would have been closed today. We knew what we were getting an unconventional leader who actually would help we the people and our country. The left colluded with big tech and new censorship designed to be a sideshow to divert our attention from the real issue. The CCP's desire to take over America and buy off our leaders is right in our face. Apparently, it's working and the CCP is winning that battle. And if that's not a clear example of Munchausen, I don't know what is. The problem is that most people don't know history and they have no idea what the crisis is and what they have created. They have no idea that they are being hurt by the very people they chose to lead. What would you expect after a decade of common core curriculum and two years of pandemic lockdown in most states? Let's face it, folks, American history is being canceled or altered. How many legislators actually have read the Constitution? Today, we hear our youth and young single adults are contemplating suicide because they feel they have no future. They feel alone, anxious, depressed resulting in unproductive or destructive thoughts and behaviors such as low self-esteem, low motivation, self-harm, addiction, and finally suicide. The impact of, of these continued crises has a huge negative effect on our youth. If we believe that the children are our future, then why are we condoning all of this darkness? It's up to us to learn history and to share the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you go back in history, all religious groups at some time were slaves, white, black, brown. It doesn't matter. Slavery is being taught and promoted to our kids as liberty and liberating, forcing hatred of other races with the purpose of dividing the people. Increasing our youth struggling with their identity, having no clear direction in their lives, and feeling no positive purpose in their destiny because their destiny is being chosen by someone else. Karen Schoen, you have been listening to the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week. See you next week. Yes,